Hey there, this is Pastor Jason, Christian Life Church, and we are pleased to bring you the recorded sessions from our recent Heritage 2020 conference with Tim Barton of Wall Builders. These first few sessions are entitled, What Makes America Special? How the Bible Shaped America. Enjoy. late and you missed the beginning of last presentation. America is a very unique nation. For 243 years, we have been a nation. and our entire existence, we've had one constitution. We enjoy more creativity than anywhere else in the world every year with more patents, more inventions, more medical cures and discoveries, more technology than the rest of the 96% of the world combined. We have more prosperity in America than anywhere else in the world. America is a special place. Now, the reason I set that up again is it used to be when you looked at America, People acknowledged what made America different and what made America special and what was a consistent theme. For hundreds of years, people used to know that America largely had been shaped and impacted by the Bible. Today, most people don't know much about the impact of the Bible on America. They don't really see that connection. Let me give you just a few examples and I'm going to back up and show you some more. So even today, the Bible is impacting things we do in life. Most people don't recognize it. But think about the English language for a second. In the English language, there are 257 idioms that we use, in the, even to this day, in the English language that come directly from Scripture. And most people that use them probably don't even know it's from the Bible. They're not thinking, be biblical. But here's an example. By the skin of your teeth. Well, here's my two cents. A leopard can't change his spots. There's nothing new under the sun. These are signs of the times. It's a thorn in the flesh. From the cradle to the grave, that's handwriting on the wall, to fly in the ointment, a little more modern ones, an eye for an eye. Well, a house divided against itself can't stand. Well, you need to fight the good fight. If you live by the sword, you die by the sword. There's no rest for the wicked. Let there be light. My cup runneth over. Go the extra mile. The promised land. Now, I am a sports junkie. I played sports in college. I coached for many years. Still love sports. I am amazed at how often ESPN quotes the Bible. Because you cannot watch any playoffs, right? You can't watch college football season. You, March Madness is coming up for basketball. You know what they're going to talk about? Some player that's going to lead his team where? The promised land. This is all over now. There's never a thought in my mind. That goes, you know what, ESPN is trying to probably spiritually encourage people, so they're using these. No, they don't know that's from the Bible, but here's the point. The Bible is so shaped, even our English language, that people quote the Bible without even knowing they're quoting the Bible. And I would encourage you, 
if you just start paying attention, if, if, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, if you start listening when you go check out at the grocery store, when you're at the hardware store, right? Wherever you go, just listen to people talk. You will hear people say things and you'll go, oh, that's from the Bible. And if you're around them, this could be a good witnessing opportunity, right? You can go up and say, hey, did you know you just quoted the Bible? Now, granted, that's probably weird. And they're going to look at you like you're weird and that's okay. But then... They might say, I didn't quote the Bible. And no, really, actually, you quoted the Bible. And at that point, they might ask you, oh, yeah, well, what did I quote? And then you probably should know, right? So study first, learn the idioms. But here's the point, is that these are all from the Bible, and there's 257. I've only given a couple examples, right? Roughly two dozen examples. This is all over our English language. Today, people don't recognize the Bible, even though it's impacting our language still to this day. And this is different than early America in a lot of ways, but one of them, John Quincy Adams was the son of John Adams. He grew up in the middle of the revolution. He then goes on and becomes the sixth president of the United States, but he wrote about life as a young child in America. What life was like growing up, what America, what was the culture of America? Here's one of the things he said about the Bible. With regard to the history contained in the Bible, it is not so much praiseworthy to be acquainted with it as it is shameful to be ignorant of it. That's an interesting statement. And on surface level, I would kind of disagree with that. I was a youth pastor for nine years. I was on staff at a church for a lot of years. I, I've done a lot in church ministry. I love the Bible. think everybody ought to read it, study it. But when I was a youth pastor, my kids did not grow up in a culture where everybody learned the Bible. So we did a lot of verse-by-verse -verse Bible studies. We'd go through a lot of books of the Bible. And I would heavily incentivize and encourage them to memorize the Bible. So much so that we would give prizes out every year. We would, do, we would, have, we would memorize different books of the Bible or different chapters or whatever it was. And I would give these huge prizes. Uh, one year I gave away a shotgun. Because we're in Texas and we can do that, right? I would give away memberships of places. And I really wanted to encourage kids to memorize the Bible. Why? Because I thought it was praiseworthy to know the Bible. That's awesome if someone knows the Bible. John Quincy Adams said it's not really praiseworthy to be acquainted with it. Why would you say it's not praiseworthy to know it? Two reasons. The first one, understanding the culture at the time. If I were to ask the adults in the room today... What is 2 plus 2? It's not impressive that you know it's 4, but it would be shameful if you didn't know it was 4. Why? It's not impressive that you know what should be obvious to everyone at your level. But it's shameful for you not to know it. Now, why would... Let's say you're not a Christian, but you're still in early America. Why would it be shameful for you not to know it? Well, first of all, the number one textbook kids learned to read with in schools was the Bible. So pretty much everybody had learned from the Bible, but let's go even further. Let's say you consider yourself an educated person. How could you be an educated person if you're not familiar with the greatest literary work that's ever been written? Nothing has sold more copies, been printed more, been more translations, been more impactful on culture, on people, on the world. There's no literary work greater than the Bible. So how could you be educated and not know it? That's why it's not so much praiseworthy to know it as it's shameful not to know it because... This was the culture. Everybody knew the Bible. We learned to read the Bible. The majority of them actually happened to be Christians. But this is a very different tone and sentiment than for us today. And, and this is where if you back up in time, there's a lot of presidents in American history who talked about the importance of the Bible. And, and I'm going to quote a lot of presidents in this next little session. 
because a lot of times today people would, would maybe be critical of the idea of how impactful the Bible was in early America. And so I'm going to point to presidents. And the reason is presidents are always downstream of culture. If a president talks about how important the Bible is, it's not necessarily because he personally thinks it is as much as he's recognizing what's happening in the culture around him. Pastors might defend the Bible regardless. Presidents, that's not who they are and what they do. But I'm going to show you presidents talking about how impactful and important the Bible has been. FDR, or excuse me, Teddy Roosevelt first. The teachings of the Bible are so interwoven and entwined with our civic and social life, it would be impossible for us to figure what life would be if these teachings were removed. He says the Bible shaped our civic and social life. Not the Bible shaped the spiritual atmosphere of America. Our civic and social life. Civic and social, those are measurable things. That's things like the idea of the free market. Where do those ideas come from? Five Bible verses. We'll talk about it tomorrow night. Things like religious, the rights of religious conscience, the rights of religious liberty. Where do those ideas come from? The Bible brought here by Christians because in Europe at the time, you didn't have religious liberty. You can go down the list of things, and we'll do some of this tomorrow. But when he says... If the teachings of the Bible were removed, you wouldn't recognize America. He's 100% true. The problem is today, people don't know the teachings of the Bible and how they impacted America, so we don't even know how the Bible's actually shaped America. But this is the president saying the Bible shaped America, and America wouldn't be the same without the Bible. FDR says something equally significant about the impact of the Bible. He says, In the formative days of the Republic, the directing influence the Bible exercised upon the fathers of the nation is conspicuously evident, meaning it's obvious. Now, let's just pause for a second. He said it's obvious the founding fathers were shaped by the Bible. Is that obvious today? Because that doesn't get talked about today. FDR, not that long ago. Right? You're talking 1940s. This is not that long ago when FDR was here. He says it's obvious that they were shaped by the Bible. He continued. We cannot read the history of our rise and development as a nation without reckoning with the place the Bible is occupied in shaping the advances of the Republic. He said you can't even read history and not see how the Bible shaped America. Pause. Time out. What history book was he reading? Because none of the modern history books talk about how the Bible shaped America. Right? This is not what we teach kids in, in high school and in, in right, primary, secondary college this is not what kids are learning so why would he think that you can't read history and not see this well two problems first of all most people don't know history anymore second problem is we don't know the bible anymore and let me show you why both those things matter if you back up benjamin franklin every historian agrees benjamin franklin is one of the least religious founding fathers okay which means it only goes up from franklin that's going to be important because he's the least religious during the Constitutional Convention, Franklin was there. He was one of the six guys who, after signing the Declaration, was part of the Constitutional Convention, helped do the Constitution. The first several weeks they are there, it is utter chaos. It's frustration, it's arguing, it's bickering, nobody gets along, because when all the colonies sent their delegates, they understood the Articles of Confederation were very much problematic. Some states initially wanted to try to solve those. Many states came and their delegates said, we need a whole new system. They start arguing, what are we going to do? They decide we, we need a new system. George Washington says, if we do something new, it has to be something that everybody believes in. Because if we don't believe in it wholeheartedly, we're never going to convince our states that they should support it. So we have to believe in this. And so New Jersey had a plan. New York had a plan. Virginia had a plan. Almost every colony came with a plan. And shocking... No colonies liked any other colonies' plan. They got 
Aaron, ah, it's dumb, we're not doing that. Well, that's a terrible idea. So they did nothing but argue for weeks. One historian says that it got so bad that delegates began to get up and leave. George Washington, who was in charge of the convention, it was reported that he actually chased down George Mason and said, you can't leave. We just fought a war to make this happen. We got to figure it out. And George Mason, right, to Washington says, well, I come back for respect for you, but this is never going to work. This is the problem and tension they're dealing with. It was at this point, Benjamin Franklin, who was the oldest man of the convention, he got up and he gave the longest speech he gave in the entire convention, and it was his proposed solution for how they could solve the problems and the impasses where they were. It was on June 28, 1787. I'm going to read you just a portion of what he said to the delegates. This is what he said. In the situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it and present it to us, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of Lights to illuminate our understanding? Now, this is Franklin suggesting we should pray and ask God for help. He continues. He said, in the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Okay, let's pause and back up. They're in Independence Hall. He says, guys, remember the revolution? Remember, we were here every day, and we prayed every single day for protection. Now, that's Franklin reminding them we used to pray all the time. And what was the conclusion? Our prayers were heard, and they were graciously answered. All of us engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. And have we now forgotten this powerful friend? Or do we imagine we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs the affairs of men. If a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this. And I also believe without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel, and we shall become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth, prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessing on our deliberation be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. This is Benjamin Franklin, the least religious founding father, saying, guys, we ought to start praying again. We ought to pray and ask God for help, and I'm going to go even further. Because I read 14 sentences from that speech, and those 14 sentences... How many Bible verses or Bible ideas did Franklin either quote or reference? This is what's crazy. In those 14 sentences, there were 14 quotes or references from the Bible. The problem today is most people have not read the original writings to see those kind of speeches. Or the second problem is when we read those speeches, we don't know the Bible well enough to go, that was a verse, and that's a verse, and that's a verse. And this is what to me is fascinating. We live in a modern era of Christianity where the least religious founding father knows the Bible better than most Christians do today. Because the Bible says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It can't come out of you if it's not in you. So Franklin, now we could argue maybe he didn't follow all the teachings of the Bible. That's true, right? Maybe he didn't believe in all the Bible. That's also true. However, Franklin still knew the Bible well enough that when he got up to give this extemporary speech, the Bible was coming all out of him 
from what he is challenging the other delegates. This is something we see a lot throughout history. In fact, after Franklin's call to prayer, what happened is George Washington, in his notes, he says they took three days off, and Washington described it as a cooling off period because tempers were high. We just, let's catch our breath. But Washington says what they did, they actually went to church. And they went to the church of the Reverend William Rogers, who led them in prayer and, and patriotic and spiritual orations for three days. At the end of three days, they came back and they reconvened. And when they reconvened, delegates such as Jonathan Dayton said the entire atmosphere changed. Where there had been a spirit of, of division and frustration, there was now a spirit of unity and peace. And we began working together and getting things done. And over the next several weeks, they put together what has become the most successful governing document in the history of the world, the U.S. Constitution. No documents lasted longer, been more successful for any nation anywhere in the world. And if you read the Constitution and you know the Bible, what you will discover are there are some phrases in the Constitution. You go, that phrase sounds familiar. Where have I heard that before? Oh, yeah, that's what the Bible says. And if you read their writings, the founding fathers talk about where did we come up with these ideas? It was directly from the Bible. John Adams, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, George Washington, all four quote Jeremiah 79 as the reason we had to separate powers. And specifically, what they say is, the reason we cannot centralize power is because the heart of man is wicked and deceitful and it can't be trusted. Well, where do we learn the heart of man is wicked and deceitful and can't be trusted? That's what Jeremiah 17, 9 says. But they don't put in their writings Jeremiah 17, 9. So if you don't know the Bible, when you read their writings, you don't recognize they're actually quoting the Bible. But here's our kind of dilemma, two problems, right? We don't know history and we don't know the Bible. And then when we briefly study history, we don't recognize the Bible because we didn't know it well enough that they were actually quoting the Bible. But in their writings, they explain many times why they did this. Franklin, when he was over in England, wrote something that was fascinating to one of his friends. He says, England is so different. He says, in America, when you reference scripture, there is no need that you give the verse that you are quoting because every American knows the verse. He says, but in England... Scripture is so foreign that they don't recognize the verse and you have to give them the reference. That's the least religious founding father explaining the difference between America and even England at that time. They really knew the Bible and it really did impact a lot of what they did. And again, we see this in a lot of areas. This is why even the least religious presidents, Andrew Jackson, nobody claims this dude was a Bible-believing, Bible-thumping, evangelical nothing, right? No. This dude had some major issues. However... Even he acknowledged what made America different. He says the Bible is the rock upon which our republic rests. Why has America enjoyed more stability, more prosperity, more freedom than any nation in the history of the world? Well, the Bible talks about you build on a good foundation and you're able to stand and able to last. The problem we have today is we're directly attacking and trying to remove the foundation that has allowed us to be strong for so long. And just to back you up, when you look at the Declaration, just to give you a little more evidence of how much the Bible impacted what they did, when you look at the guys who did the Declaration, there's 56 guys who signed the Declaration, and of the guys who signed the Declaration, you have people like Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, James Wilson, and Benjamin Rush. All five of them in their writings say that the majority of the ideas we use in the Declaration came from the writings of John Locke. Richard Henry Lee, who's the one who made the motion actually to separate from Great Britain there in Congress, Richard Henry Lee says we actually just copied, this is his writing, we copied the Declaration from John Locke's two treatises of government. Most Americans have never read John Locke's two treatises of government. In John Locke's two treatises, he's writing them in response to, and, and John Locke was a noted theologian. 
He was a believer, but John Locke was writing in response to an English royal person who was writing in defense of divine right of kings. And, and this, this kind of British hierarchy guy says that we know that kings are God's idea and God loves kings and, and the Bible is full of kings. And this guy says that the very first king of the Bible was Adam. God made Adam king of the world and Adam's sons were kings. And so he just starts telling Bible stories about kings and he's totally wrong on every level, but this is what he does. John Locke writes his first treatise in response to this argument of divine right of kings. And what he says is essentially, this is the worst exegesis of scripture I have ever heard. The Bible does not defend divine right of kings. Adam was not a king. And so John Locke starts in Genesis. And he goes through Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Seth and goes through lineages about how they weren't kings. But all of this was explaining that divine right of kings wasn't God's idea. God's idea was individual responsibility and individual liberty. People are in charge of themselves. And they make... But the reason I point this out is in John Locke's two treatises, he quotes the Bible more than 1,500 times on the way government should and shouldn't operate. And the Founding Fathers said this was the most inspirational thing for us doing the Declaration. The Founding Fathers in their own writings are acknowledging they based the Declaration on a book that references Scripture more than 1,500 times. That's impactful to know that, yeah, they really were being shaped, their thinking, their ideas shaped by the Bible. Well, that's a Declaration. Let's go forward to the Constitution. When the Constitution was done, the guys, the 55 framers of the Constitution, there was a group of professors who decided they wanted to study and see what really influenced the Founding Fathers the most. So they went through 15,000 what they called representative writings of roughly 40 years what they called the Founding Era. And of those 15,000 writings, what they were looking for is every time the Founding Fathers quoted somebody or referenced somebody to see who were the Founding Fathers being influenced by. So they were looking for the influence of the Founding Fathers as noted by their writings. The book they did was called The Origins of American Constitutionalism. This is a summation of all their findings. And what they discovered, the most quoted individual in the Founders' writings over that 40 roughly year period was Charles Montesquieu. 8.3% of the quotes came from Montesquieu. He did Spirit of the Laws. Then you have William Blackstone. He was the second most quoted individual in the Founders' letters. Uh, in writings at 7.9%. John Locke was the third most quoted. And they did note during the American Revolution, John Locke was the most quoted. But then you have several decades after. And after that, John Locke was not quoted as much. Now, those are the most quoted individuals. But these professors noted that was not the most quoted source in the Founders' writings. The most cited reference quoted source in the Founders' writings was the Bible. 34% of all the quotes they found in those 15,000 writings came from the Bible. There's no doubt they were influenced by the Bible because you see it in so much of what they wrote, said, and did. Today, we just don't see the connection of how the Bible shaped what they did. Even President Zachary Taylor talked about the impact of the Bible in his day. The Bible is the best of books. I wish it were in the hands of everyone. It is indispensable to the safety and permanence of our institutions, especially should the Bible be placed in the hands of the young. It is the best school book in the world. I would that all of our people were brought up under the influence of that holy book. Notice he says it is the best school book in the world. Not, I wish we should use it in schools, right? He's defending, no, 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 this especially, we ought to prioritize this above everything else. It is the best school book ever. It was still being used in schools at that time. It was still a primary text for students to learn to read and practice their reading as they would go throughout the year. But this is an, another president explaining the Bible is, is one of the greatest things we have. 
Benjamin Rush signed the declaration, helped ratify the Constitution. He served in the first three different presidential administrations. He actually founded the first anti-slavery society with Benjamin Franklin in America. He helped found one of the very first Bible societies in America. He helped found the Sunday School Movement in America. This guy's resume is remarkable. Well, among that, he also was known as the father of public schools under the Constitution because serving under George Washington, as we now are becoming a United Nation, there's... At this point, there's no Department of Education because the Founding Fathers believed education belongs to the communities, to the local area, like states at the most, right, but not federal government and run schools. So because we had different colonies running their own schools, Benjamin Franklin began writing essays to make sure that all the colonies were on the same page when it came to education. One of the essays that he wrote was an essay where he explained the Bible contains more knowledge necessary to man in its present state than any other book in the world. Now... What he's arguing, the reason kids should study the Bible is it's one of the best helpful books they will ever read. Well, why would he say that? Let me give you the idea. Because if you want to know how can you be a good employee, how can you be a good sibling, how can you be a good child, or one day write a good spouse, husband, wife, how can you be a good parent, all of those ideas are found in the Bible. He says... More knowledge necessary to man in his present state. Where we are now, this is the most helpful book you will ever read in your entire life. And so this is why he advocated the Bible should be used. Now, knowing that this is a practical book, this is the way we used to view the Bible. And I'm, I'm going to tell the example of Matthew Murray just to kind of illustrate this. We used to believe the Bible should be read in a practical way. That's important because a lot of times today, we think of the Bible as a spiritual book, not always as a practical life book style or life living kind of book even though that's really why most of the bible is written was to help god's kids know how to live it's why the apostle paul wrote his 13 epistles right most of the bible is to help us know how to live the life god's called us to live matthew Mari was a ship captain he grew up wanting to always go to the sea so he became a cabin boy and then he was a crewman or a mate and then he became a captain and then he had a whole fleet under him so he just goes this whole span of having all these ships well matthew Mari is the guy who discovered, he's known as the father of oceanography because he discovered there are actual currents in the ocean. He discovered this in the 1800s. This is before there's satellite. It's before there's GPS. This is amazing. He discovered it. How he discovered it, one day he was at home. He was riding in a carriage. He had a terrible accident. It broke his leg. His leg actually never healed properly, so he never could return to sea because he couldn't hold his balance up on the deck. But while he was at home recovering from a broken leg, he called his daughter in. And he said, I found comfort in my daughter reading the Bible to me. So he called his daughter in, had his daughter read the Bible. And he said, there was one passage that when she read it, I told her, stop. Read that to me again. So she stopped and read it again. He said, nope, read it to me again. She read it again. He made her read it over and over and over. The passage, he says, was Psalms 8.8. And here's what Psalms 8.8 said that he heard over and over. Thou madest man to have dominion over the works of thy hand, Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the fields, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. He said, when I heard paths of the sea, I told her, read that to me again. Right? He's thinking, I couldn't have heard that right. And then he started thinking about it. Are there paths in the sea? Because the Bible says there are, and I believe what the Bible says is true. He decided as soon as his leg recovered... He was going to investigate and find out, are there paths in the sea? And what he discovered is there actually are paths in the sea, right? These ocean currents. And not only did he discover ocean currents, 
Also, as he was having his daughter read the Bible to him, she read Ecclesiastes 1.6, which says the wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. And he said, if there's a circuit, that seems to indicate there's a pattern. Are there patterns to the weather? He began investigating weather, and he's the one that discovered there are actually different jet streams, and there are different patterns. Naval meteorology came about because of his discoveries. He's known as the father of naval meteorology. And in the midst of, of his discoveries, he was very open about, well, I was reading the Bible, and I saw this in the Bible, and it made me want to investigate, and I investigated, and here's what I found. So he credited the Bible. Well, if you're in the science world and you credit the Bible, even though the vast majority of major scientists in world history did credit the Bible, the ones who made amazing discoveries, he was being criticized this time because this is kind of the Darwin era. And, and, and science and the Bible, they don't go together. So people were picking on him saying, you can't base science discoveries in the Bible. He wrote this letter back in response. Oh my gosh, I don't even have the letter. Oh, it's so sad. Okay, this is a short presentation. He wrote a letter back and said, men have blamed... Uh, men on this continent and in Europe blame me uh, for the discoveries of, of uh, the currents and the air on the Bible. They say that that can't be done. Um, he says, however, what they will discover is that science and the Bible are both true. And when men of science with their vain and hasty conceit announce the discovery of disagreement between them, rely upon it, the fault is not with the word, the Bible, or his records, but with the worm who in, attempts to interpret evidence he does not understand. He said, anytime signs in the Bible contradict, it's because people don't know what they're talking about because God's word is always right. That's absolutely true. Let me give you another practical example. John Adams is one of the founding fathers who actually has multiple letters where he says the reason we had to separate powers is because the heart of man is wicked and deceitful and it can't be trusted. Therefore, we separate powers. Because if we had centralized power and that one heart goes bad, our entire government is doomed. But if we have different powers and there's checks and balances... Then, if one goes bad, the other hopefully can keep that one in check, and hopefully all their hearts don't go bad at the same time. Where did John Adams get the idea that the heart of man was wicked and deceitful that made him think we need checks and balances and separation of powers? Clearly from the Bible, and he wrote this in several letters. And this is the point. They didn't just read the Bible thinking they needed to have a spiritual checklist, and okay, I read the Bible, check it off, right? I read my Psalms and Proverbs for the day. No. They read the Bible believing that what it said was true, and it had direct impact on the life they were living. Another example is James Kent. He's known as the father of American jurisprudence. Actually, there are two guys known as that, um, he and Joseph Story, but he's the one that came up with the use of circuit judges. He said, we should have a judge, because back then they didn't have enough judges for every town. He said, let's have a judge go from this town to this town to this town, and, and he can just ride on a circuit, and he can judge the people from town to town, and that, that way everybody has a judge, and everybody has... As, as a way to get their disputes solved and their problems handled. The reason that's significant is when James Ken explains we should have judges that ride a circuit, he actually quotes the verse from Samuel where it says, Samuel got on his donkey and he rode on a circuit from this town to this town to this town judging the people. James Kent says, we should do just what Samuel did. That's in his writings. And this is where circuit judges started in America. See, these guys, they not only knew the Bible, they thought the Bible gave them ideas and guidance for what they could do. One of my favorite examples, actually there's two, the last two I'm going to show is Benjamin Franklin, who is the guy that started the very first hospital in America. It's in Pennsylvania. You actually go to Philadelphia. The hospital is still there, and at the hospital, they still have the original seal and motto from Benjamin Franklin. Now, the seal and motto are from Luke 10. Luke 10 is the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan 
If you remember, it's, it's, it's when the Jewish guy was going, he gets jumped, he gets robbed, he's beaten, stripped, left for dead. And you have these religious leaders that come by and they walk on the other side of the road. And finally, the Samaritan, the good Samaritan, comes by, sees a Jew who Samaritans and Jews were not friends at that point, but he goes and he helps this Jew and he puts him on a donkey and he, he takes him to the inn and he gives the innkeeper money and he says, hey, take care of him. And, and if there's any extra expenses that are left over, I, when I return, I'll pay any additional expenses. You just take care of this person. Right? That was the parable. Here is the seal and motto from Franklin. I don't know if you can see it well from where you are, but it's a picture of a man who is on a donkey, another guy helping the man on the donkey, then an innkeeper, there's an inn behind him, his hand is out, he's putting something in his hand, and the bottom says, take care of him and I will repay thee. Franklin said, hospitals should be about helping those in need, and it's our job to do good where we can, and we will be repaid one day in the future. That's an amazing, now again, this is the least religious founding father, right? Like, this is the guy who doesn't even really believe in God, is what we're told today. This is where you see that what they read in the Bible, they believed that there was a lot of truth in what they read, and it should change the way they live their life. Probably my favorite example comes from Alexander Hamilton. James Madison are just two guys that use this as an example. Many more did. But Alexander Hamilton, referencing from Exodus 31, talked about, the reason we have a written constitution is because of the finger of God. James Madison says almost the identical thing. The finger of God is the reason we have a written constitution. The reason this matters is if you back up and, and, and get a little Bible context, okay? So looking at the Bible, one of the things we know, right, the end of Genesis is when Joseph is now a ruler in Egypt. But when Exodus picks up, it's been several hundred years, and the new Pharaoh doesn't know Joseph or his story. And so he enslaves the Israelites. Well, as the Israelites are enslaved, they cry out for a deliverer. We know this is where God raises up Moses. So Moses is going to be the deliverer to go to the people. Part of the deliverance, there are ten plagues involved. Here's what is really interesting about the ten plagues. When the first plague comes, right, Moses shows up, and blood... And Pharaoh is taken back, and he turns to the magicians and says, hey, and they say, ah, we can do this trick. We can turn things to blood, so they get a bowl out, and they make water go to blood. And Pharaoh goes, aha, I knew that wasn't good enough. Not going to count it, right? So then you have the frogs, and so the plague of frogs comes in, and, and the magicians for Pharaoh say, ah, we can bring frogs in. We can conjure that magic up, so they bring frogs in. So Pharaoh's not impressed. He hardens his heart, doesn't let the people go. The third plague is where everything changes. And, and by the way, you can read this in the Bible. Don't take my word for it. Go to Exodus and look. Okay? When lice comes, this is where Pharaoh's guys for the first time go, ooh, dang, that's a good trick. I have no idea how he did that. Like, none. That's, that's impressive right there. This is where the heart of Pharaoh now, his, his magicians look and say, this is something totally different. In fact, if you look at this for this story, you'll find in Exodus 8, it says, All the dust of the earth became lice through all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried with their secret arts to bring forth the lice. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This is nothing man can do. This came directly from God. This is the finger of God, what we're seeing happen right here. The finger of God's important. This is something you see several times throughout Scripture that indicates it had to come only by the power of God because nothing else could have done this. If you go just a little further, right in Exodus 31, when the Ten Commandments are done, it says the finger of God is what wrote these Ten Commandments. If you go a little further, um, I do think I have a verse for this one. 
Exodus 31, 18, when God had finished speaking with Moses at Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablet of stone written by the finger of God. So again, the two tablets, the Ten Commandments, were written by the finger of God. You go forward to Daniel chapter 5. This is when uh, the, the, the king is having a feast, and so they bring out the gold vessels that were taken from the temple of the house of God. And, and when it does, it says this giant hand appeared in the room, and it wrote on the wall, meeny, meeny, tekel, you farsin, Right? But this was a display that was done by the hand of God, by the finger of God. When Jesus is doing miracles, you can find this, and, and there's more examples, I'm just giving you a couple. In Luke eleven twenty, if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. Notice again the finger of God. Every time in scripture it references the finger of God, it is highlighting the power and authority that cannot come from man, that only comes from God. Right? No man can do this, only God can do this. Why that matters is... If you understand what the finger of God means in Scripture, go back to the guys who were part of the Constitutional Convention and notice the phraseology they use for how they got the Constitution written. Alexander Hamilton said, For my own part, I sincerely esteem the Constitution a system which, without the finger of God, never could have been suggested and agreed upon by such a diversity of interests. We were too divided to make this work. This had to be because of the finger of God. They recognized God helped do this thing. James Madison has the exact same thought and idea when you look at his writings. Here's how he explained the situation. The real wonder is that the Constitutional Convention overcame so many difficulties, and to overcome them with so much agreement was as unprecedented as it was unexpected. It is impossible for the pious man not to recognize in it a finger of that almighty hand which was so frequently extended to us in the critical stage of the Revolution. Madison says... With how well this worked, there's no way you can look at this and not see, yeah, God helped do that. That, that was totally God, because we couldn't have done that. This is the theme you see over and over. George Washington, who is the chair of the convention, right? He's the leader of the convention. George Washington even says something along those exact same lines, recognizing what they saw that was different for the Constitution. As to my sentiments with respect to the new Constitution, it appears to me little short of a miracle it demonstrates as visibly the finger of providence as any possible event in the course of human affairs ever can designate. Now, Washington says, you pick every event that's happened in the history of man. This lines up, if you think God did something there, you absolutely God did something here, because this was the finger of providence. That's the finger of God. The founding fathers recognized the finger of God. And by the way, why wouldn't they? They took three days off to go to church. They then started praying and asking God. For, I mean, this was Benjamin Franklin's suggestion, right? We should pray and ask for God for help. So then when things started all of a sudden working together, they knew why. We, we've been asking for God to get involved. And if it's working this good, it must be because God got involved. But this is where when you read their writings and you know Scripture, you see how much Scripture shaped their thinking, their behavior, their actions, what they did. Today, we just don't see it as much. President John Quincy Adams, and I'm going to mention a little bit more of his story tomorrow, but one of the things I think that's so remarkable about John Quincy Adams is in the midst of all he did growing up in the Revolution, um, when America becomes a nation, he was chosen as a diplomat for America. George Washington says that John Quincy Adams was the best diplomat America ever had, which is a big statement. And while John Quincy Adams, and, and he's overseas for years and years and years, while he's overseas, during one of his postings as ambassador for America over in Europe, over in Russia, different places, he has a son, George Washington Adams, who is 10 years old and growing up in America. And John Quincy Adams 
is a little concerned that his son is not learning everything he should, that a father would want to teach his son. And so he wrote his son nine letters that he said, son, there are certain things you have to know. And so I'm going to write these letters so you will learn what you would have learned if I was there. But since I'm not there, I'm going to have to tell you in letters. All nine letters were about how to study the Bible and how to get the most out of Bible study. All nine of those are available online. It's really cool. You can go and read it. But here's one of a part of the letters that he wrote to his 10-year-old son about the Bible. No book in the world deserves to be so unceasingly studied and so profoundly meditated upon as the Bible. I have myself for many years made it a practice to read through the Bible once every year, which is a really good practice. And that was a practice very common in the founding era. One of the things that is very sad in modern culture today, most Christians statistically have never read the Bible cover to cover. Now, the reason that's sad is it seems silly that we would say we base our life on a book we've never read. Right? That would seem silly. If I said, well, I base my life on uh, The Lord of the Rings because I hear J.R.R. Tolkien is a really good author. I've never read them, but I hear they're good books. That would just be ridiculous. Right? But this is what so often happens. We've never read the book we say we base our life on or, or about the guy we're going to follow. Right? Jesus, he says, I read it once every year. This was a very common practice in early America to go through the Bible every year. He says, my custom is to read four or five chapters every morning immediately after rising from bed. It employs about an hour of my time and seems to me the most suitable manner of beginning the day. He continued. He said, I've always endeavored to read it with the same spirit which I now recommend to you. Now, this is where the key is going to be. He's telling his son, the reason I think it's important that you read the Bible, this is the spirit you should read the Bible with, that it may contribute, or that with a desire, intention and desire that it may contribute to my advance in wisdom and virtue. So the desire is that it increases our wisdom and our virtue. Wisdom deals with the way we think, and virtue deals with the way we live. He's telling his 10-year-old son, son, the reason we should read the Bible every day, right, read the Bible cover to cover every year, the reason we spend time in God's Word is to make sure we are thinking the right thoughts, right, have the mind of Christ, and make sure we are living the life God's called us to live. That's the reason we read the Bible. That's a really good reason to read the Bible, the problem is, again, today, just too few people actually read the Bible, okay? The average American household has over four Bibles. The problem is not that we don't have Bibles, it's that we don't spend enough time in the Bibles we do have, and culture is a reflection of the fact that we don't know the Bible very well. Uh, I'm going to close out with a thought. One of the, I, I think, a really powerful verse related to knowing the Bible is what God told Joshua. As Joshua was getting ready to lead the Israelites into Canaan, into the Promised Land, God told Joshua the key to success. He said, constantly think about my word every day and every night, so you will be sure to obey it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Everybody in life wants to be prosperous and successful, right? I mean, everybody. God said, if you really want prosperity and success, here's the key. Study my word and then do what it says. Now, God's definition of prosperity and success might be different than ours, right? However, I would argue that having a healthy marriage... Raising loving kids, probably better than having a big checking account at the end of the day, right? God's idea of prosperity and success, ultimately more fulfilling, more satisfying. But this is the point. God says, this is something that all you have to do is study my word and do what it says. This is where as Christians, we ought to even be challenged to go back. The reason America has been one of the most stable, blessed nations in the history of the world is that God's ways work. And God's ways only work every time, Right? But we can't do it God's way if we don't know God's way. And this is where one of the things that even Jesus said is, if you love me, keep my commands. 
you can only keep the commands you know. Which means you've got to study God's word to know God's word so you can live God's word and then enjoy the blessings and benefits of God's word. And this is something certainly we see in early America. I've shown you just a glimpse. Uh, I will tell you the Founders Bible has thousands of these examples where they reference scripture, um, where they talk about how the Bible shaped what they did. Wallbuilders.com, we have a ton of stuff, free stuff. We're also all over social media. We do new videos every week. We have a daily radio program. So there's lots of ways for you guys to get more information. And we want to help you have more information. We believe that part of God's calling for us is that God's called wall builders to be like an ammunition depot, that we help give bullets to people in different areas so you can go and fight and engage in the battles where God has you in your life. And so we want to help do that if we can. So we have a lot of free stuff, a lot of videos, a lot of stuff going on, but there are some really cool resources as well. And I want to just encourage us. What our nation needs now more than ever are people who know what the truth is, and ultimately, truth is found, I would argue, beyond anything else, you'd find it in God's Word. And as much as culture is looking for solutions, God's given us the answer to every problem we deal with in life, and it's in His Word. We just got to go back to the Bible and find what those answers are. And let me again tell you why I think we should be encouraged for the day we're living in. Because there's a lot of people bothered by culture and the problems and drama and all this. And there's a lot of, I understand, there's a lot of concern, I get it. But if you walk in a room and it's dark... You can be bothered, or you can just turn on the light. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. We can be frustrated by people that don't know truth, or we can recognize this is the ultimate job security of why God has me here. Right? As long as there are people who are lost and living in darkness who don't know truth, then that's the reason God has me here. And I will go even further that sometimes we look at culture... And we think, man, the problem in culture is too big. How can I solve the problem in culture? Honestly, God's not called you to solve the problems in culture. The Bible talks about being faithful in the little. Right? What we've been called to do is be faithful with what God has entrusted to us. What God has entrusted to us starts with our friends, our coworkers, Right? We often get paralyzed looking at how big the problem is. Right? With, okay... Donald Trump, Nancy Pelosi, right? I mean, you kind of pick who you don't like, and then that's the person we have a problem with. God hasn't called you to solve that problem. And a lot of times people get paralyzed because they feel helpless because they can't solve the big problem. Our name comes from the Bible book of Nehemiah. Back up to Nehemiah. When Nehemiah wanted to go rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, they said it's impossible, it can't be done, you're wasting your time. The other religious people told him that. The people that should have been supporting him said, ah, oh, don't do it. You're wasting your time. He said, nope, this is what I know I'm called to do. I'm going to do it. He said, anybody who will join me, come get with me. Look, let's rebuild this thing together. And when people joined in, he says, everybody, we're going to do what we can. E even if you can only rebuild your backyard, that's okay. You just do what you can in your backyard, and we're going to work together. This was the, one of the very first grassroots movements and campaigns in America. And when everybody started working together in 52 days, they completed what everybody thought was an impossible job. What I would encourage is if Christians just started going, you know what, let me just take care of my area. If churches said, let me just help take care of my community, if every church took care of their community, every community would be taken care of, and all of a sudden the national problems wouldn't be national problems anymore. Because we've solved most of them at the local level. And this is where I want to encourage us, this is a great time to be alive because there are people who are desperate for truth, who don't know truth. But if we're going to be the solution, right, 
where we are, we have to know what truth is, and ultimately that means we have to get back to knowing what the Word of God says. So I would encourage you, get back, study the Bible, know what the Bible says. What made our nation so special was the leaders we had were people who knew what the Bible said, and they knew how to apply it to what they did. Not every one of them believed in Jesus. Now, almost everybody, there's like two or three that didn't of the 250 founding fathers, right? But yeah, they didn't all believe in Jesus, but they all knew the principles of the Bible, and they knew it was the best way for a nation to function and work. The problem is today, we have people that believe in Jesus who don't know the principles of the Bible and therefore can't promote and implement those things. We have to get back to knowing what the Bible says so we can offer those solutions to a culture in find out more information on this event and other events happening at the Christian Life Church, please visit www.christianlifewaverlyny.com.